Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. On this episode of Americano, we're going to revisit the subject we covered in the last one, because in our last podcast, uh, loyal listeners will remember, we had Seymour Hirsch, the American journalist, talking about his theory, his piece on Substack, that America took out the Nord Stream pipelines. There was a fair amount of criticism on Twitter about the podcast, about Seymour Hirsch, a lot of people calling him a crank and so on, and various people suggesting we got in touch with Oliver Alexander, who has been doing a lot of work debunking Seymour Hirsch's thesis. And he joins me now. Oliver, thank you very much for coming on. And thanks for having me. I should introduce you. You are an open source intelligence analyst based in Denmark. And before we get on to the uh, Seymour Hirsch debunking. Can I just ask you, what's your working theory? I know it's changed a little bit recently, but what's your working theory as to what happened to the Nord Stream I mean, pipelines? It's hard to say. I don't have like a conclusive theory because I have circumstantial evidence that suggests that possibly Russia was involved. There's That's where my circumstantial evidence points. They had motive to do this. Mm. There's some contract negotiations in regards to Nord Stream 1, fixed negotiations there on the contract and that had to run through. They wanted Germany to pay in rubles. Germany wanted to continue to pay in euros. And that was the whole conundrum that kind of caused that to close down. So there was motivation to, if Nord Stream 1 was blown up, they would then be able to force gas through Nord Stream 2 in the eventuality that Germany had a tough winter, harsh winter, which would then allow a brand new contract to be opened, which Russia could then dictate the terms of because they had you know, they were suddenly in a position where this was a new contract. Germany was in trouble. They needed the gas. Now suddenly Russia can say, okay, we can provide the gas, but it requires these terms for our contract. It would also be a political victory for Russia because, well, as has been stated many times, both the US and Germany stated many times that Nord Stream 2 would never open. It was a dead project. So if they could somehow convince Germany to go back on this promise and then reopen Nord Stream 1, it would be a massive political victory for Putin because suddenly, you know, see the West, they listen to us, we have power, we're powerful again. Hmm. They might also be able to negotiate something in regards to the aid for Ukraine in kind of in tit for tat for this reopening of the gas. My other theory is that the actual initial explosion that happened at 02, 03 uh, local time by... um, South of Bonholm might have actually been an accident that was caused by faulty faulty work during the um, construction of it. It coincides exactly where the former ships that were owned by a large European company laying it were hit by the sanctions and they had to stop pipeline at exactly that point. And then later on, a Russian ship took over, which was a ship that was known to have a lot of trouble with quality control. It ended up, it was meant to lay three kilometers of pipe daily. It ended up only laying 300 meters daily because they had so many issues with quality control. This is um, the this is the academic Chensky, the ship. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that had a lot of problems. And if you look at articles in the years prior, because about one and a half years from when sanctions hit and the European company had to stop laying the pipe till this Russian ship took over, there were many articles talking about how this ship was not suited for the purpose. It had never really been used to lay this large diameter of pipe before. There were other articles talking about how 
they probably weren't be, wouldn't be able to find a Russian crew that was experienced in handling this diameter of pipe and wouldn't be able to lay this properly. And there was just a lot of questions in the years up to that. This, if they were going to go this way, was this the right way? Was this a problem to use the ship? And and it turned out that it was a problem because it only managed to lay about seventeen kilometers of pipe before they actually ended up just completely scrapping the using that ship and bringing in another ship because it was only laying about a tenth of what it was meant to be laying. So uh, forgive me if I'm getting this wrong. The theory then would be, could be, and I, I accept that you, you, it's still just a working theory or an idea, would be that, that Nord Stream 2 exploded or leaked by accident and then the Russians triggered their plan to blow up Nord Stream 1 in response. That would have, that would have the timeline right, would it? Yeah, I think, well, for my personal theory again, I don't have any proof of this yet. I'm working on different angles, trying to actually find some verifiable proof on this, is that they might have had this plan to blow up Nord Stream 2, possibly also had explosives on or on Nord Stream 1, possibly also had explosives on Nord Stream 2. Keep the bombs there, blow them up in some future eventuality where Germany was running out of gas in December, in January or something, where they were in a harsh winter, they were in trouble. Then they kind of had the leverage. Once this happened, if it's proven that this was actually a leak, this happened, then suddenly they had to accelerate the plans because suddenly... Um, Suddenly, they would expect that if you know a gas pipe leaks, there's going to be a large investigation. This investigation is going to end up checking all the pipes. They don't want any other leaks because of this. In which yeah. case, you would have found the explosives. They kind of would have been forced into blowing up prematurely. There's a 17-hour time gap, which always kind of confused me. And there's also the 80-kilometer distance. The 17-hour time gap could, in theory, be explained by this happening. They discovered that there was this leak. They had to go up the chain of command to get to, let's say, for example, Putin. He then authorized it, and then you kind of went back down, and then mm. that would probably take a couple of hours at least to kind of go through this process. And be so that's kind of my working theory at this time. Uh, I accept your point about how it may have been useful leverage. It might have been a useful propaganda tool, but it would nonetheless blow up. And if you say that there was explosives on both Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, presumably placed by Russia it would blow up Russia's only real leverage over the West, and indeed it, it has, or only energy leverage over the West. What, I mean, that a lot of people would find that odd, even if we think Putin's irrational, for Russia to behave in such a presumably self-destructive manner. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's their only leverage. I mean, Nord Stream 1 and 2 were always just built as a way of kind of bypassing the Brotherhood pipelines and stuff that went through Ukraine and through Poland. I mean, even without Nord Stream 1 and 2, they still have capacity to provide more gas to Europe than Europe has ever bought from Russia. But nevertheless, so they, did, really like, they did build them, you know, and there, there was a lot of investment and a lot of diplomacy went into them beforehand. Yes, of course. Yeah, but we could say that the initial contract on Nord Stream 1, I think, if I remember correctly, was set to run until 2027. And Nord Stream 2 would never be able to come into operation without the German government signing the documents required to say, okay, this is now approved, you can bring it in. Having Being in a situation where they would force the German government to actually sign this and then sign a contract for Nord Stream 2 would be worth, in theory, hundreds of billions of dollars over the next 10, 20 years, because suddenly a lot more than what the people say, okay, it costs it was $9, million, or $9 billion worth of damage or however many that people kind of estimate as the damage. I mean, the potential upside to bringing Nord Stream 2 online would be worth tenfold what they actually cost in this situation. Mm. Well, let's let's move on to uh, Seymour Hirsch, whose piece you've done several articles debunking. 
first of all, I'd like to ask you, you know, how did you start doing this? Did you read Seymour Hersh's article and think, hmm, that doesn't seem right? How, how did you have the idea to start? Debunking? Well, I mean, initially, I just randomly stumbled across the article. The card accounting started getting spread around. And then I just saw it and initially, just straight off the bat at the start, there was some inconsistency that just didn't make sense. And then it was just more of a trying to go through each of these inconsistencies and try to deprove it or disprove it or debunk it, whatever you want to say, because more and more things just didn't add up with, yeah, all facts, basically. And where do you, uh, people have been quite rude about Seymour Hirsch and sort of suggesting he's a crank and so on. Do you think he's a crank? Do you think he's ideologically motivated? Are you ideologically motivated against him? Uh, I wouldn't say I'm ideologically motivated. But, um, as he called me out in an interview, he said, there are these people that are obsessed with facts, is what he <laughs> called me out as. I just kind of, I'm, I mean, I think he has the burden of proof. He's the one that brings forth the theory. He doesn't have any evidence. The evidence that we can find goes contrary to or counter to his theory. So, I mean, at some point, it's the question of being able to, can you disprove the existence of God or do you have to prove the existence of God? It's like the, it's hard to disprove something that didn't happen. Yes. So at some point he has to actually bring forth some information. Well, let's go through your points against the Hirsch theory. The Hirsch theory, to remind listeners, is that America did it in conjunction with Norway and your evidence using tracking and maps and so on is that there were not the ships that could have done this the various norwegian craft or possibly even american craft you you throw that in hirsch doesn't say that but you say that could be a possibility it doesn't add up they weren't there at the right moment they were too far away take us through the sort of the glaring faults in hirsch's speech well, i mean i mean there's some there's some kind of weird things where he talks about Stoltenberg being a cia agent back in when he was like 13 which is more of a I mean, that's hard to disprove. It's hard to prove. It's more of just hearsay. But if you go through the hard facts, there's stuff like he mentions that this exercise off of Bunhol, this experimental mind clearing exercise was added specifically for the purpose of being cover for the planting of these mines. But I mean, you can go back, there's data available all the way back to 2009 that shows this exercise has always been a part of Beltops. It's one of the main priorities of this exercise. It's always, there's always been a large experimental mind seeking and mind hunting operation kind of exercise right there you can go back through years of tracks years of photographs from the u.s government that put them out as i mean it's pr for them mm. you can go through the tracks you can see that it's every year it's this, basically the same locations where they have these exercises so, i mean already there the fact that he states that this exercise was added for the specific purpose of being covered for this doesn't make any sense because that's blatantly false yes um he also states that a um that a Norwegian P-8 Poseidon aircraft was used to drop a sono buoy to detonate these um, explosives during what he said was a routine flight, which, again, doesn't make sense because, well, at the time, the Norwegian P-8s weren't in regular service. They were still going through training. They had a few training flights in the days leading up to them, but they're always, they're based up in the north northern end of Norway, Basically, as far away in Norway as you can get from Bonholm in Denmark. Mm. Um, they, they weren't part of regular service. And again, he states that they used a routine flight as cover. Anyone that knows basic Nordic geography would say that there's never been a routine flight of a Norwegian Air Force aircraft over the part of Denmark that is the furthest away from Norway. It's not. They don't operate here. They don't have any. They've never operated here. They operate in the north mm. of Norway to kind of cover that from subs. There's no reason for them to be there. He would then also state that, oh, they could have turned off their tracking. That's why you couldn't see them, 
which again, in this situation where this is all very top secret between Norway and just the president, basically, because he states that Congress wasn't allowed to know and the Gang of Eight wasn't allowed to know. No one in the U.S. was really allowed to know. You would have either had to fly this plane with tracking off through basically the entirety of Sweden and then get into Danish airspace without Sweden or Denmark asking questions, which is, again, it's just overly complex and it doesn't make any sense as to how you'd also need refueling on the way if you're doing that for a long. It's just there's just too many factors that don't make sense. Again, you could look at the ships. Yes, let's talk about the ships. Yeah. Um, He specifically states that it was an Alta class, which it categorically couldn't really be because there was no Alta class in that area. There was a ship called the Oxu class, called the Henry, which is a sister class to the other ship. Uh, I asked, I've asked him in this in emails. He again doubles down on it being an Alta class, which wasn't there. Anyone again with basic knowledge of geography in the Nordics would know that you can't really sneak a vessel in to that into the Baltic Sea there are it's kind of hard to get past Denmark there's two bridges you have to sail under it's not really it's not like an open ocean where you can just kind of sneak a vessel in and mm. anyway these ships have all been accounted for everyone that wasn't at the exercise except well the Hinu was at the exercise all the other ones can be accounted for using both AIS data which is kind of this ship beacon thing that they have on and corroborated with satellite photos where you can see the ship was at this location at the time where this beacon said it was there. So you can kind of corroborate the specific Alta in the Alta class was scrapped actually just around the time of the exercise. This is, there's photographs of this from Norwegian ship spotters and stuff that show it being towed to the scrapyard and then being scrapped. And it was, I mean, the ship hadn't been in use since 2012. So it wasn't in any state to actually go anywhere at that point in time. I'm pretty certain that Denmark and Sweden would have noticed if a ship that looked like something out of the water world kind of went through the waters and then went into the middle of an active military exercise mm. while being completely undercover. So again, the only ship that it could have been would have been this Hinoi, which was part of the exercise, which was a sister class to what he says. So in theory, that could make sense. But if you look at IIS data, there's no indication that it was stationary at any time near any of these sites. And it was... Backed up, I have six different satellite photos that confirm the location, corroborate it with the other data. So, I mean, you could have a hundred points and conspiracy theorists and other people still say, okay, but it was between these two points where you have 10 seconds where there's no data. So you can really never 100% be sure there. I admit that. But at the same time, this during this exercise, the ship sailed with ships from the Netherlands, from Estonia, from or Latvia, sorry, from Poland, I remember, and from a cup of Sweden and a Finnish ship, I think. So if the ship had to kind of go out of formation to start planting these explosives here, you would have somehow also had to bring in all of these countries. And at some point now we're up to about eight countries that were involved. While at the same time, he suggests this is top secret. No one in the U.S. government could know except for basically Biden and a couple of other members of the administration. Mm. It's just kind of this conspiracy that at some point reaches a point where you need so many people involved that it doesn't make sense. And let's talk. Let's let's go along with that. Let's talk about the diving operation that would have been required. Are you saying that there is no way divers could have gone that far with the equipment that they had to 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 put the I explosives mean, in place from 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 where the ship might have been? I mean, the ship passed the two explosives by the Nord Stream one for like an hour. It sailed a couple of nautical miles away, so they would have had to rush over there and go down. And that doesn't seem feasible in any way. If we and at the same time for the other one, the ship would have had to go at a fast speed faster than 
it could actually go to reach there in time. And then you have the diving operation, which best case scenario takes at least an hour each place. Mm. If you have a decompression chamber on board and you rush and everything, it's just, there's just no real scenario where it would make sense. I mean, in theory, okay, they could have taken some unmarked rib boats from the ship and sailed out. And, but that again, goes counter to what Seymour Hersh has said in interviews afterwards, where he says that they parked the ship on top and then they, jumped off the side of the ship. And so, I mean, in theory, yes, it could happen, but then it wouldn't be his story because he has doubled down on these points of his story many times in many interviews. Mm. And let's go back to the Sonner boy or buoy. You think that's sort of Tom Clancy style fictionalizing because today that's not the way a, a modern military would do it. It's a very old school. I mean, it just seems overly of- complex because we've talked about how the acoustic signals, they had to be careful because any whale could set off the bombs but i mean these acoustic signals are used in these blowout protectors they use in oil wells all over the world they mm. also use the same kind of and they have very complex mechanisms where they can open slightly or open close slightly they don't just you know explode don't explode and they never get set off by random ambient noise mm. and if we suggest that okay this is a way of detonating that makes sense it's not like an impossibility the fact that you had to fly a plane over to drop a sonar buoy to detonate it doesn't really make sense because, I mean, these the places where you use these in real life, they just have a little, it's like a little thing that you just kind of drop in the water. It's the size of a suitcase and a spool of wire, and then it, that can signal down to 5,000 meters depth. It's just, it would have been so much easier to just send a little, little boat out to sail past, just drop that in, activate like that. There's just no reason for this whole especially when you're trying to keep it top, top secret for to add all of these extra elements that aren't necessary. Mm. So if we go with your working theory that the Russians, in reaction to a leak on Nord Stream 2, uh, then blew up Nord Stream 1, how would they have, How do you think they did it? With a, with a ship? Tr- how did they trigger um, the explosives? I mean, I, at this point, I don't know. I don't, there's circumstantial evidence. There's the Minerva Julie, which was a Greek ship that was sailing from Rotterdam to... to um, St. Petersburg, which is an oil tanker that has been used to transport a lot of Russian oil that decided to, on top of the um, the two Nord Stream 1 sites that, was, that are north of Bonholm, it decided to stop there for about seven days randomly and just kind of sail around directly on top of these two points for apparently no reason. Yeah. And then just kind of move on. And that ship left, um, left port on the 1st of September, which is the day after Russia actually decided to close down Nord Stream 1. Mm-hmm. And that just kind of, it sailed around for about seven days directly on top of these, the locations of the explosives for no seeming reason. So, but, so you would, you, you're still suspicious of the Minerva Juliet. Maybe I missed it. I thought you'd sort of decided that that wasn't. Uh, no, I'm still, but that thing, I, I still think that has at least some involved. Like it might be, might not be directly involved, but I definitely think that there was something to do with that because it's, you can go through ship data for thousands of ships that sailed over there. No ship has ever decided to do that right at that point. And the fact that it happened about two weeks prior to the explosion is a bit. And 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 as you say, it's Greek owned, but it carries Russian oil. So it, yes, it might. It, that would be yes. the reason to treat it with suspicion. We're not, we're not bringing the Greeks into this. No, no, it's not, I don't think. It's, no, no, it's Greeks, but it, it's. I mean, the company behind it also has some ties to Russian and stuff. So it's it all kind of fits in a way how reliable because i'm sure you'll call them conspiracy theorists but a lot of people would say you know the charts that you're getting can easily be 
fiddled with. The data that you're looking at can be changed. Um, how reliable do you think all the charts and the AIS and so on, how reliable is that since we're talking That's about going back I, in time? I, I think it's very reliable. I mean, usually when ships when ships turn it off, you can see because there's no track. So like it wasn't turned off, it was on. Yeah. You could then argue that it was spoofed, that they you know changed the coordinates for these but that's usually like there are times where that's been done in smuggling operations and stuff. And it's, it's not immediately obvious, but like you can start, if you start looking at the patterns, stuff doesn't make sense because ships kind of the velocity changes and it kind of jumps around and it looks odd. If you start looking at the data, Yeah, there's none of that, no evidence of that, at least here at the same time, I've tried to where possible corroborate this data with satellite imagery. So you can say, okay, I know exactly at this time, the ship is supposedly at these coordinates. Then you can go and look at satellite imagery available of the location. Then you find the exact time where the satellite was was overhead and took the picture. Then you find out, okay, it was at these coordinates, the ship. Then you look on the satellite image, type in those coordinates, and then the ship is directly in the center of there. And you can say, okay, the ship, there's a ship here at this time, directly where the data says, and you have multiple points for the, for the exercise, I managed to find six different points where I could corroborate this evidence. Hmm. So at that point, I mean, there's no 100% guarantee out of this, but again, all the evidence that's available points to that not having happened. How did you learn to analyze this data? Oh, it's been a long process of just, I mean, it was been a hobby project for years, for the last five, six, seven years. I've done this kind of passion project and then would say that during the startup to the war in Ukraine, it kind of accelerated. I did a lot of debunking of the um, false flag um, events that Russia did leading up to the conflict. Stuff like uh, there was a man that supposedly, according to them, had had his leg blown off yeah. during a Ukrainian mortar attack, which looking at the video that I found, you could see that he has already had a prosthetic. So they'd just taken his prosthetic leg off. They already had his leg amputated prior and they just kind of pretended that was... And then there was the other... There was about 10 different very strange events leading up to the war that kind of got me more involved. And then just over the course of the war, I've kind of just focused. I mean, a lot of these OSINT accounts kind of focus, you know, you know, doing kind of everything. I like to find individual events and just kind of dig deeper into individual events and try to do as much research as possible on these individual events. Yeah. Well, I hope you won't take offense to this, but because I asked Seymour Hirsch if he was a pro-Russian, can I, you're not involved in intelligence, Western intelligence. Uh, no, no, I have no connection to Western intelligence. And you're not being fed information by Western intelligence groups. No, I mean, that's the great thing about open source intelligence and this. Everyone, anyone can go on marine traffic or any other and corroborate all of this data. I mean, yeah. I don't have to have an anonymous source that just say, trust me, anyone can go look you up don't... the exact same data I have. You don't have anyone pointing you in, in a certain direction or anything like that? No, no, no I have no one. Just, just my own curiosity and then finding what I can find. I mean, I talk to people in like the OSIT networks and, you know, just random people in my network. Everyone kind of notices things. There's usually someone on Twitter that's noticed something and you kind of dig, but there's no one like pulling the strings, so to say. Uh, and as for your working theory on Nord Stream 2 being a leak, I mean, I can imagine... I haven't really looked at the reactions on Twitter and so on, but I imagine a lot of the you know, people in the Seymour Hirsch camp, let's say, because there are people like that, they would regard it as dubious to think that there could be a leak at such a critical moment in Russian 
uh, Western relations that that this event would happen. It, I mean, you can see why people might think that is very yeah. odd. But I mean, a lot of people say, oh, how did these thing, events happen so close together? But at that point, I'd say, well, the event that happened accidentally happened first and the other ones happened as a result of that. I mean, you can have, it's easy to make an event that you choose when happens happen whenever. I mean, that's not like the fact that they happen together isn't really a coincidence. That's just that this happened and you could say that, okay, it was about a year and a half since they finished the pipeline. The, I'm guessing this hasn't been something I've been able to corroborate yet. I'm working on it. I would guess that maintenance for these pipes, seeing as how they were already dead as such, was probably kept to a bare minimum, legal minimum of whatever was required to actually check and check the weld and make sure everything was intact because, again, the project was dead. There's no point of throwing money at a maintenance for a project that doesn't really have any income. So I think that, well, at least uh, so far, I haven't seen anything to really, like, go against it. I'm open to, if anyone has any evidence they can send me that proves that this didn't happen, I'm, again, I'm open to changing my theory. It's a working hypothesis. I'm not stuck on one idea. Before you read the Seymour Hirsch piece, were you aware of theories that uh, Norway w- was involved? Because, I mean, I'd heard of people suggesting it was Ukraine. I'd heard the Polish. I'd never, I'm not an expert or I'm not really across this subject, but I'd never heard anyone suggesting the Norwegians. Had you? If I remember correctly, I think, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I think at some point initially Europe, uh, Russia said that it was the UK in cooperation with, based in Norway at some point, I think they mentioned. But I mean, they've also said that it was, they've also said it was the UK that was behind it, Russia. And they at one point even said they had a, a text message from Liz Trust that said, it's done. <laughs> and now suddenly they've jumped on the Seymour Hirsch bandwagon and now it was U.S. and Norway, and apparently the U.K. wasn't involved, so it's kind of a... Like, yeah, they did, they did hack Liz, it. They did hack Liz Truss's phone, apparently, so maybe that's, how, maybe that's how they did it. But, I mean, I found it kind of strange, or at least telling that they had the U.N. Security Council meeting to talk about all of this Hirsch story and try to kind of... They had the world's attention on the Nord Stream bombings, and they couldn't bring forth a single piece of evidence to corroborate anything that... Hirsch had said, had they just had just a single piece of evidence they could have shown in front of the world and said, hey, this actually, this part of the story is true because our massive intelligence apparatus has confirmed that this, there's nothing. There was just some, some random singing by Raymond McGovern and just, it was just kind of like their proof was this article and the fact that Joe Biden said that Nord Stream 2 wasn't going to happen. That was kind of the mountain of evidence that the Russian intelligence apparatus could bring forth at the U.N., Yes. Well, but let's talk about that. I mean, it it is sort of, obviously, it's not proof that Joe Biden said it, Victoria Newland said it, other people in the American foreign policy establishment have said it. It is, it, do, it, it does make it seem a bit fishy, or perhaps I've been brainwashed by Russian well, counterinformation. I mean, yes, but I'd also say at the time, Nord Stream 2 was basically, for all intents and purposes, dead when it was blown up. Like there wasn't, I mean, it's not like it was an active pipeline. It had never received the required approvals from the German government and stuff like it wasn't they say they were going to kill Nord Stream 2 it wasn't going to happen it was dead yeah well at the time it was already dead Mm. I mean in theory it could be open but it still required a vote on it and you know like the documentation to be in order but I mean at that time there was it was dead in the water this is of course a more permanent solution to it but well I mean wasn't active at the time yeah but uh, Germany has been quite open to to Russian energy in the past. I mean, it, it could quite easily have changed its mind. 
Germany could have quite easily suggested. Uh, again, think. that's my theory is that's why Russia would have kind of tried to force Germany to change their mind. I think at that point, I think Germany was pretty, if you look at like, if you do research on the gas and stuff at that point in time, gas was kind of like, there wasn't really much of a risk that this winter there was going to be a problem with gas. Mm. They had alternate supplies. They had enough gas and storage. They had lowered their use. So in that regard, I would say that Germany was kind of in a pretty safe position at that point. There wasn't really any need to kind of be threatened. That's also why I always think the time, the timing of it, is, of it has always been kind of off to me. I feel like there was no real point for the U.S., for example, to blow it up at that time at the end of September. Again, for Russia, there wasn't really any point in time because it was probably the point where Germany was in almost the best situation it was in regards to gas. There wasn't really much pressure to be had there. So I think that's kind of, again, the timing can kind of be explained by them being forced to accelerate this idea through potentially mm. yeah, an accident or something that happened. And do you suspect that Seymour Hirsch and others like him are being led by the nose by Russian information agents, by Russian fake news, by people sort of peddling deliberately false information? I mean, specifically Seymour Hirsch, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to say anything bad about him, but I mean, he's he's getting up there in age and stuff. And I mean, things happen when... I mean, if you listen to his podcast when he's on different podcasts, he keeps kind of having the same talking points about how one thing that he mentions a lot is that the is that Russia still hasn't sent its main force into Ukraine, which is again a very pro-Russian kind of Russia Today Kremlin talking point that I don't that has no bearing in reality. Mm. That Russia hasn't sent its main military force into Ukraine, which I don't know where he has this from, mm. but it's a very popular talking point if you go to the pro-Russian kind of side of. Twitter or the internet that, oh, we have this massive army in reserve, we're not even using our army yet. So, I mean, if that's something he actually believes or it's something that he's just pretending to believe, I have no idea on the man's motivations, but it's just, there's a lot of these kind of talking points that kind of line up with, he was also talking, there was a couple of interviews where he mentioned that the motivation for it happening here in September was because that was when Joe Biden was told that the war was going poorly and Ukraine had no chance to stop Russia but if you think back to September, that's when the major Ukrainian counteroffensive started all over the country and they took back swaths of land and destroyed mountains of Russian equipment and killed hundreds, thousands of Russian troops. So, I mean, the fact that his idea is that this was when Joe Biden was kind of panicking is also kind of off time-wise Yeah. look at the actual evidence available. Although he does say that actually, you know, the gains had been exaggerated and that there was a sort of panic within Washington and other places that actually the war was not going nearly as well as most people thought in public. Yeah, I mean, I think that the only, I mean, I mean, each side kind of has maybe a rosier view on the war. I mean, pro-Ukrainian ties maybe it's going bad, might not be going as well as, but again, the Russian side is always this kind of this yin and yang of trying to figure out who's right. It's mm. usually somewhere in the middle, maybe more to this side than the other side. But again, at that point in time, it was... It was at least time where it was going more towards Ukraine's favor than Russia's favor. It's kind of more of a stalemate now. I mean, it's still a question of, you know, just kind of wearing one side down. At this point, I mean, Russia can stop the war whenever they like by kind of just, yeah, again, it's kind of been the balls in their court in that regard. Ukraine has to keep fighting. Well, Oliver, I think we'll leave it there. But um, thank you very much for coming on to the Americano podcast. And I should yeah. say anybody who's interested in figuring out this mystery should look at your detective work on your substack oliver alexander substack is that that's what it's called 
It's Oliver Alexander DK, I think. DK, Oliver Alexander DK, Substack, for more unraveling of this great mystery. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroz, and the rest of the Spectators broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America. Mm-hmm.